please do join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Luke chapter 3, where we're going to pick up from where we left off last week. As we turn to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that there are secret things that belong to you and you alone. Yet there are things that belong to us because you have revealed them to us. So Father, be pleased to reveal our Savior in your word so that by your Spirit working in us, we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. The problem with illustrations sometimes is if they're too old, only the old folks know them, not the, not the young folks. But if it's current and, and you know, the young folks know it, the, the older folks may not know it. So this may be kind of something older, but feel free to ask me and others a little more about it. There was a news anchor for CBS Evening News from 1962 to 1981, and he was overwhelmingly known as the most trusted man in America. I'm talking about Walter Cronkite. Yeah, some of you know that name. Others of you need to ask your parents or your grandparents that name. And he was known not only for integrity and honesty as a broadcaster, but he was known for his departing catchphrase, and that's the way it is, followed by the date of the broadcast. And that's the way it is. Today, we've got 24-7 news. I mean, how many anchors are there out there? There's bad news, fake news, By the way, just because someone says something's fake news doesn't necessarily mean it's fake news. Maybe they don't want you to believe the truth. But anyway, there's bad news, there's fake news, there's misinformation, there's disinformation, and there's what I am both the receiver of and the giver of, TMI. Too much information. But what is needed today and needed always is news that provides just the right amount of accurate information. And what is needed also, but seems to be in short supply, if available at all, is good news. Now, Walter Cronkite had evidence to back up what he said. And so did Luke. In writing his narrative account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, Luke has taken the time and made the effort to gather the evidence so as to be able to say throughout his 24 chapters, and that's the way it is. The way it is when it comes to Jesus Christ is good news for all people. Now, in these early weeks of Luke, it's important to keep his purpose and his plan in mind and in view because I guarantee 
it's going to take a while to get through all 24 chapters. We'll probably take breaks here and there. And one of the big challenges, of course, is do you preach three verses or do you preach 15 verses or do you preach a whole chapter? We'll make those decisions as we, as we go. But it's important, especially at the beginning, to, to keep his purpose and his plan in view. His purpose, as you know, because we all have our doubts at times, he, he writes to provide certainty about the person and work of Jesus. Now, this certainty is not arrogance. It's not overconfidence. It's not self-confidence, but rather it is humble certainty and sureness. And he's got a plan. His plan is to write an orderly account, a narrative account that, as we've been seeing, is historically accurate. It's thoroughly researched and it's well organized. And it's organized to show who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And if you've got to go somewhere in Luke to hang the hook on Luke, it's chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, to save all kinds of people who are lost in all kinds of ways. You see, Luke wants his reader, Theophilus then and other readers then and now, to know for sure that Jesus is for real. Now last week we looked at the first 14 verses of Luke 3, the last Old Testament prophet. And we saw that God, after a period of 400, 460 years of silence, gave his word to a prophet. He gave his word to John. And it was a word of salvation to come, a word of warning in general, and a word of application in particular. We saw that verses 10 through 14 were unique to Luke. And anytime only one gospel writer includes it, you need to stop and ask those questions of why. What's his purpose? And in those verses, um, Luke's answer, or John's answering that question of uh, the people had, what shall we do? And in this, we, we, he, he wants us to understand of how to treat people, how to treat people in view of the, the temptations of money, of power, and control. Now, in his preaching and baptizing ministry, John is preparing people to meet Jesus, to meet him sooner or later, sooner as Savior or later as judge, it reminds me, I think, of a song by the grassroots, sooner or later. Sooner as savior, later as judge. Luke gives us information to be sure, but he also offers us an invitation. An invitation to recognize Jesus and respond to Jesus. Well, today we're going to continue with Luke's account of the ministry of John the Baptist. His main earlier message was repent, as we saw last week. Today it's going to be look to Jesus. I want us to, we won't read it all like we usually do, but we'll just go through certain sections. But I want us to start with verse 18 where Luke writes about John. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. He preached good news to the people. It sounds like he's preaching the gospel. He, he's preaching good news about the coming Messiah, about the coming one, the promised one. Now, 
through the spoken word, John is preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. And now, also through the written word, Luke is preaching good news to his readers then and now about Jesus Christ. Now, as Luke prepares to present the public ministry of Jesus Christ, we'll see that in the latter part of chapter 4, Luke sets up several foundational truths about Jesus Christ. In our text today, we will see that he will do this through both his narrative account of the ministry of John the Baptist and his own comments about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there are four aspects of the good news that I believe we will see in today's text. The baptism of Christ, the judgment of Christ, the divine nature of Jesus, and the human nature of Jesus. Now, the first two have to do with the work of our Savior, and those last two have to do with the person of our Savior. So we're going to look at the baptism of Christ, the judgment of Christ, the divine nature of Jesus, and the human nature of Jesus. Let's look first at John the Baptist preaching the good news of the baptism of Christ. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 and go for a little bit. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Notice the people are expectant. They are expecting, they are waiting, and they're watching. And they've been following and listening to this, what we would say is the last Old Testament prophet as he's been preaching and baptizing. The folks have heard of the promise of a coming one. And with John's arrival on the scene, they're wondering, is he the one? Is he the one? Notice John has self-awareness of who he is. And he also has an awareness of who the Messiah will be. John knew his own position. In so many words, he says, Jesus Christ, the one coming, is superior to me. He's got a higher position. He's going to give a greater blessing. And he's going to be the judge who makes distinctions. And we'll look at that in a bit. So he speaks of the fact that, in a word, I'm not the one. I mean, think about the temptation. The people are coming to John and they say, are you the one? John could probably have made a lot of money, right? He could have created some enterprise to take advantage of the question of people. Are you the one? You know, in John's gospel, he makes this statement that speaking of the Christ, that he must increase, but I must decrease. We don't see those words in Luke's account, but, but they're there. Because he's going to speak of Jesus who 
he's not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, in the Jewish tradition at the time between rabbis and students, you know, slaves could go all the way down to a particular level, but they couldn't untie the sandals of their master. It was just too low. And yet John is saying, I'm not even low. I am lower than the low. I'm not even worthy to do the most demeaning task. Jesus Christ who's coming is so much more superior. I'm not the one. The coming one is the one. He's got a higher position, but he's also gonna bring a greater blessing. What John says, I baptize with water. But the one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John knew that he could only outwardly cleanse people by giving them an external sign. He points to the one coming who, it's not going to be an external sign. It's going to be an internal change. And this Holy Spirit and fire, scholars have debated back and forth. Is it two separate things? Is it one thing? I tend to think it's a it's a, an expression of kind of the work. We see it in Acts when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost on the people. We say in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. It's the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and it's an expression that it's a, a purifying, saving work. Now, why is this good news? Why is this baptism of Christ the, the, the baptism that, the, that Christ is going to give and perform, why is it good news? Well, it's good news because it's salvation. You see, John can give an outward sign, but the one coming can give the inward reality. Salvation. In that word, you can, you can go through all of Scripture and just bring into that understanding of what does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's salvation. It's being a new creation in Christ. It's being born again. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. We're in need, not only of that initial work of the Spirit, but as we saw in our adult class, we're in need of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit who's not just with us, but who is in us. So John is preaching the good news of the salvation of Christ as he speaks of the baptism of Christ. Well, not only does John proclaim that the coming Messiah, that Christ will save, he also proclaims that the coming Messiah, the Christ, will, will judge so John the Baptist is also preaching the good news of the judgment of Christ. Let's pick up in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's a couple of images there. There's that image of the separation of the wheat and the chaff. I mean, Jesus uses it. Other writers use it. You see it in the Old Testament. It was a farming illustration. The wind would blow away the lighter chaff and the grain would fall. 
It's a distinction, it's a separation. The Messiah would bring a sharp distinction and a sharp separation among people. And you hear, or you hear of this other image, burn with unquenchable fire. You see it as hell, as judgment, as eternal torment. The judgment is coming. Now, why is this good news? Why is this good news? Well, it's a, it's a warning. And, and warnings, even though they require you to stop and take action and pull off the road, check the oil, check the air, warnings are good news. I had a boss in the Navy, and you probably can figure out why he would say this to me often. He said, Ensign or Lieutenant Vesey, the only thing worse than bad news is late bad news. Get it? The only thing worse than bad news is late bad news. In other words, why are you bringing that problem to me now? You should have told me yesterday or the day before. This is early warning. That early warning is good news. And it's good news for the one who's been saved because it assures us that wrong will be punished and right will be rewarded. And this ties in with John's main message, repent. And it also ties in with Jesus' main message as we will see, at the, in, we see in the beginning of Mark, repent and believe in the gospel. You know, how somebody views Jesus really does make an eternal difference. You know, what think ye of Jesus? Jesus is the only one who can honestly say, I alone can fix it. What you make of Jesus, in turn, is what Jesus makes of you. You see, Jesus as ultimate judge is central to Luke. And we saw when we went through Acts, it's central to the preaching that we see in Acts. Now I want us to know before we go on that sometimes preaching good news gets you into trouble. Listen to verses 19 and 20. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Here, Luke, almost in passing, notes that, well, John, the baptizer, he's arrested, he's thrown into prison, and he'll later be executed for preaching. For preaching, repent. For preaching, believe. For preaching, good news. He, John the Baptist confronted and rebuked Herod for divorcing his wife in order to marry his niece, who was also his sister-in-law, among other things. And we saw in other places how, in more detail, how Herod responds to this. 
You know, whenever you and I are confronted by sin from a word from the outside, it's time to make a choice. Believe it, own up to it, acknowledge it, confess it, ask for forgiveness to the extent that we can, right the wrong. Herod shows us not a good example of how to respond well to the preaching of good news. So Luke wants to provide certainty that Jesus can and will save and he can and will judge. After letting his reader know that John has been imprisoned, Luke now turns to mention, again, almost in passing, of what happened when Jesus of Nazareth was baptized. And so we see Luke here preaches the good news of the divine nature of Jesus. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, this is the baptism of Jesus, not the one he performs, not the the baptism of Christ that we talked about a moment ago, but the one he receives. He receives from John. For Luke, the emphasis here is not that Jesus is identifying with sinful man. That is true. And Matthew makes that explicit. But rather, what is, I believe, up front here is the, the work of the Trinity. You see, you've got the Son, you've got the Spirit, and you've got the Father all involved. And for those of you here for the earlier adult class on dwelling within, lesson four on who is the Holy Spirit, that was a better answer than what I probably will be able to share. But let's give it a try. You see, Jesus here at his baptism, and the emphasis that Luke has is Jesus is being empowered by the Holy Spirit for ministry, being anointed and equipped Jesus for his role as prophet and priest and king, to speak for God, to to be the sacrifice to God, and to conquer all his and our enemies as king. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So Jesus is being empowered for ministry by the Holy Spirit, but he's also being endorsed by the Father. And it's just not like a blurb in the front of a book, or it's not just an endorsement um, of a check, so to speak. This is the approval and the affection. Jesus of Nazareth is being addressed as my son, as the one I love, and the one with whom I am well pleased. Is that your view of God? God the Father? The one who can say something like, I I love you, son. I'm well pleased with you, son. I mean, how many of us have not wanted our earthly fathers to say those words to us 
And here's the heavenly father, the voice from heaven speaking of not the son, but my son, the one I love, the one with whom I am well pleased. That voice from heaven confirms the divine approval. That the father takes delight in all that Jesus is and does. Now why is this good news? Well, it's good news because here the emphasis is on the divinity of Jesus. That he is God. Now, I just said that that's where the emphasis is, but it's interesting that Luke throws in a detail that no one else does, that it was Jesus in prayer. Jesus in prayer. That he could do nothing without his father. He looked to his father. It's kind of a showing, and we'll talk about this in a moment, his, his humanity. But here the emphasis is on the divinity of Jesus. Why is that good news? Because... In order to be our mediator, in order to be the go-between between man and God, he, he had to be God in order to have the power to save. He had to be God in order to be able to actually conquer all his and our enemies. And who were those enemies? Sin and death. Who of us can get into a wrestling match with sin and win? Who of us can go to death and come out alive by our own power? No, the Savior had to be God. And here early on in Luke, Luke is saying this man, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is God. But now Luke turns to what could almost be seen as a footnote or an endnote associated with Jesus of Nazareth. But in these verses, this long list of names are important. And, and, and in here, Luke, I believe, is preaching the good news of the human nature of Jesus, the, the family tree of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. I, don't, I can't say that I've actually sat and watched it, but I've been on PBS, public broadcasting, and there's been an advertisement for a show, Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates, Jr., where he explores fascinating ancestries and family mysteries for an array of notable guests. Well, my friends, between verses 23 and 38 is the family tree, the genealogy of Jesus. And to be sure, it's an interesting ancestry. And it's... Uh, a bit mysterious, especially when you look at Matthew's genealogy. And if you look at Matthew's and Luke's, they're different. One hand, Matthew starts right at the beginning where you would expect to see this. And here, Luke's got it here. Right between the baptism of Jesus and then Jesus going into the wilderness and withstanding temptations as the second Adam. Well, the genealogy here differs from Matthew, and it's in a reverse order, and it goes back beyond Abraham. Remember, Luke is writing mainly to a Jewish audience, and so he goes back to Abraham. But here, 
Luke takes it all the way to Adam. Not only is it longer, not only is it a reversed order, but they're different names. It's been a mystery to theologians and scholars, but for all that's in there, I think we need to make just a few points because there are three names in particular. Let me begin with verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then I want you to skip to verse 31, the end of the verse, the son of David. And then go to the middle of verse 34, the son of Abraham. And then go to the middle of verse 38, the son of Adam. David, Abraham, Adam. You see, Jesus, Luke is showing, has a claim to the throne through David that God had promised that through David, there would always be a descendant on the throne. The covenant with David. There, there was Jesus being the son of Abraham, uh, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the father of God's people, Israel. But he's also the son of Adam. You see, Jesus, Luke wants us to know, is a member of the human race. He's human. He's not just divine. And by going all the way back to Adam, Luke is setting up this idea that Jesus is for all kinds of people who are lost in all kinds of ways. Now, why is this good news? Why is the humanity of Jesus good news? Well, we could spend hours, but let me just say a few things. He had to be man in order to be that sinless sacrifice, that perfect, obedient man, that second Adam, that last Adam, who, as we will see next week in the temptation, succeeded where Adam failed. But more than that, or in addition to that, we know that Jesus as a man knows us, our weaknesses, our infirmities, our fears. Tempted just as we are, yet without sin. I really want us to all, as we think about Jesus, our Savior. He's fully God. He's fully man. He knows us. So Luke here wants to provide certainty as to who Jesus is. He's the one mediator a person with a divine nature and a human nature. And remember that early Christian heresies dealt with the two natures of the one person of Jesus. Either there was too much of an emphasis on one and not enough on the other, and it got people and it got the church at times in all kinds of trouble. Let's land. And I want to land with just a couple of words. What goes without saying should be said. What goes without saying should be said. 
The life of a Christian is centered on Jesus Christ. The life of a Christian can have many different branches serving in this way and that way and promoting this and that and the other. But the life of a Christian is centered, grounded, focused on Jesus Christ. If it's not, you may want to ask some questions of yourself and maybe others. And it goes without saying, but it should be said that the the life and ministry of the church should be centered on Jesus Christ. Therefore, we've got to know Jesus and we get to know him through his word and by his spirit. And Luke wants us to know Jesus. And what Luke says about Jesus is good news. Good news. You see, the average American, I've I've read, speaks 165 words a minute. Fast talkers speak 200 words a minute. Walter Cronkite trained himself to speak at a rate of 124 words a minute. Why? So that viewers could clearly understand him. When it comes to knowing Jesus, who he is, the son of God and the son of Adam, and what he came to do, he came to seek and to save the lost Luke, as I believe we will see more and more, speaks slowly and clearly and says after each installment in his narrative account, and that's the way it is. My friends, may we all thank God that the way it is when it comes to Jesus is true and timely. And the way it is when it comes to Jesus is good news for all people. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as some of us heard earlier in our Sunday school class, what people think about Jesus is really irrelevant. We need to know who he is, what he came to do, what he did, and what he has promised to do for his people. Oh, Father, enable us as sinful, frail, fallen people to embrace the good news of Jesus, to be be confronted by the objective reality of the truth of the gospel. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus that didn't well up from inside us but came to us as a word from the outside. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that for those of us who are trusting in him, it is true of us that he came to seek us and to save us. May that be true for the people that we love and our families our friends, our neighbors in this community here in Bellevue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
There is good news.